Judges chapter 7. We're kind of in the middle of the life of Gideon. We introduced Gideon last week, a pretty popular, pretty famous Old Testament character. Um, but if there's a way to split Gideon into two types of people, no, we're going to do it. At least we're going to try. Um, last week he comes across, the paraphrase would be of him or the characterization of him would be kind of a timid, kind of a frightened, uh, insecure man um, who had been called by God to a seriously big task. I pick you to go and rescue my people and deliver them out of the oppression of the Midianites. And so that was what he was called to. And clearly there was work to do in Gideon's life because his faith had to grow. He had no concept of God, no belief of God really whatsoever. And that had to grow. And then clearly we saw last week that his idols had to get taken care of because he was into false worship at the time. And so he had to deal with both of those aspects and I think at least in my study the week before, I was fairly encouraged by the experience of Gideon's first chapter in six because I could see myself. And to be fair, I think I see all of us in an example like that, those of us who call ourselves Christians, because there is a spiritual insecurity we are all kind of born with. Tell me if this isn't familiar to you. Somewhere in your journey, someone tells you about hope and tells you about peace and tells you about Jesus and that he will die, he has died for your sin, to cover over your unrighteousness and give you a righteousness not of your own. And what do you think? When you hear those words, you kind of go down that, that hole that says, I don't, could he, could he deal with what I did? Could the forgiveness of God actually save me? Could it cover me? There's no way he could use me. Maybe there's some kind of marginal way that his death could apply to someone like me, but I've done, I've been, I am, right? We kind of start there in our spiritual progression only to find out how gracious God is to us and how he is so into our growth and our transformation and that he accomplishes that wonderful, huge good in our life. Haven't you experienced that in your spiritual journey with the Lord? All of us have. So there's something that I really warm up to when I read chapter six of Gideon and even chapter seven, but we're gonna discover something uncomfortable in Gideon's life today. I'm kind of like calling it the, the two sides uh, to Gideon, and it relates to us because I think there's two sides to us, you know? Let me describe it this way. If, if there's a way to describe one part of Gideon's life that we share, and that is this God-believing, God-fearing, God-authored part of faith, then in contrast to that, there is this fear of man, selfish, um, sinful part called the flesh that the scriptures also talk about. There's this conflict between those two people. And they're kind of hanging out all the time in our, in our experience, aren't they? The Apostle Paul talked about that tension when he said this, I don't understand my own actions for I do not want to do what I'm doing. Like I get stuck just responding to things. I do the very thing I hate is what Paul says. So my assumption is everybody in here had a little experience with that this week. Like I don't get me. What did I just do? And we kind of sort that out. So it's sort of like, the two sides to a believer. And I think in, a, in some ways we can look at Gideon's life and go, well, that's how it shows itself. Both of those things revi- reside in our heart depending upon how we respond in obedience to God or not. So, so we have a task today, like I said, to deal with three chapters and, and I have no way to read all the narratives. So I'm gonna try to tell a lot of the story. But the way I've broke it out, if you like handlebars and at least to remember the text, I'm gonna leave seven, chapter seven to one side and, and just call it this idea of when God gets a man's heart. 
And chapter 8 and chapter 9 will be this, when success goes to your head. And those two things lie in the heart of Gideon and the heart of every man as well. So before we dig into the story, let me just kind of reinforce what God thinks of Gideon way, way, way past his life. In Hebrews chapter 11, the writer of Hebrews is talking about faith, teaching the church about faith. And it says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And then he goes on a litany list of Old Testament characters who please God by their faith. So you have Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Isaac and Gideon. And I think, I think, Without knowing what we're going to see today, you would go, oh, of course, Gideon. He was used of God to defend and rescue his people. But you're going to see in chapters 8 and 9 a little head scratcher. Like, how does that happen in the same guy at the same, almost seems like the same exact time? Well, we're going to discover that today. So let's deal with the first half, chapter 7, when God gets your heart. Gideon is still in the process of believing big things, and and so this is where we find it. Remember last week, we... uh, We left Gideon needing a few reminders of God's promise and his faithfulness to his promise. Gideon says, okay, God, I I know you've called me. I know you've told me I've got to go rescue these people, but I'm not really certain here. Can you just confirm the call? I'm going to put this fleece out, this this sheepskin out, and would you make the sheepskin wet and the ground dry? Then I'll know it's you, and, and God does it. And he says, okay, God, I got one more test for you. Will you make the skin dry and the ground wet, and then I'll know it's you. So he's been a little sluggish to get the point that God has asked him uh, through this whole process. And it's taken a little work to get Gideon to this place we find him in chapter 7. At one point, the beginning of chapter 6, we see him challenging God when God says, hey, mighty man of valor. And he just goes on to accuse God of neglecting and forsaking his people. He, he talks about all of his excuses. Like, I'm the weakest of the weakest clan. I'm nobody, and you picked the wrong guy. That's kind of where we found him, doubting God and asking for signs and being paralyzed by fear. But I think at the point we pick it up in chapter 7, Gideon has moved on. However deep it is, I'm not certain, but he's at least moved on to go, okay, I think I can believe God. And this is where we find him, chapter 7, verse 1. And Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod, and the camp of the Midian was north of them. So, so get the picture here. I don't know if you're like me, but this is what happens to me. If I'm enthusiastic about what tomorrow holds, I get up early. Do you? Like, I'm ready. I'm ready. Gideon and all the people got up because they were ready. Somehow, I think, something clicked in their hearts, like, okay, God's going to do a great work for us. And, and so he's up early. And he, he, I think he starts this expression of, of faith. But even though he's believing, there's still some work to do on Gideon's life. And, and so let me give you some thoughts to consider when you think about a man when God gets his heart. The first thing is God teaches him a lesson on, on dependence. Verse 2, look at verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many. For me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. So, so picture this. Gideon wakes up. People rise up early. 30-some thousand people show up for the battle. Gideon's looking around going, this is going really well. We're going to have some success. And the very first thing he hears from God is, uh, no, we're not doing that. If, if you go to battle with 30,000 plus, you're going to think it's you. So there's too many. So here's what I want you to do. Tell the people who are afraid to go home. 20,000 people go home. That would be pretty devastating, but at least maybe 10,000. That's a lot of people. That'd be 10 times what you have in this room. That'd feel like at least something. God says to him, verse 5, still too many. 
you're still going to make the confusion to think that you're doing this, so let's do this. Let me take them down to the water. And we go down to the water, let me test them there. And so when the people go to drink, if they're people who kneel down, tell them to go home. The, the men who kneel and, and lap like a dog the water, those are your guys. The lappers are your men, okay? And that's how it happens. Now, stop for a second. How do you think Gideon feels now? It was a good night, right? Just saw the fleece, woke up believing, 30,000 showed up. God dwindles his army down to nothing but a bunch of lappers. How do you think he feels now? How would you feel? Probably just like, like Gideon. And God knows a couple of things about this particular story. He knows what he's already said. You'll take the credit for it. And Gideon, by the way, I can tell what you think your strength is. You think it's them. But I want to make a point. I'm going to teach you about myself. I'm going to grow your faith. So let me stop and ask a question. Where does your strength come from? Are you certain it's not just like everybody else? Meaning success is your strength or profit is your strength? Is, is your strength connected to some kind of really positive report from a doctor? Okay, now I'm good because they said I'm, I'm okay. Does your strength come from popularity that people agree with you? See, you have to understand something. Where God's going with Gideon is the same place he's going with everyone in this room. He wants everything. He wants our heart. He, he wants our affections to be for him. He wants our peace to be from him. He wants our strength to be about him and not about ourselves. And the scriptures have lots of terms that it uses to describe our God, but one of them is, is really awesome. This text tells us that he's a jealous God and he has every right to be. This is my world and you're my people, and I made it, and I'm doing what I want to do to show my glory because I'm magnificent. And he goes on display in every particular event. He's sovereign over all things. In fact, Paul says to the church in Rome, he calls God the, the causer of things. And you know this passage this way, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him. God is taking all things, not just the good that you discern, but all things to shape good as he discerns. And that includes, I don't have enough. I don't have enough people. There's not enough strength. I don't have enough, like, courage. God has taken all things to shape that faith in us. And, and so here's this reality. Gideon is, is learning the hard way, I guess, that God is never outmanned or undersupplied, no matter what the circumstances are. That's the reality of what he's learning. So Gideon's faith needs to grow. So let's look at the second aspect of the lesson learned uh, for, for Gideon. The, the, the second one is that he needs a lesson in reassurance. Now, let, let's get back to the story. Gideon, um, Gideon had been called by God, and God has slowly kind of peeled away his hope and his, his strength, this man-made stuff, and, and he knows how Gideon is feeling. Only 300, and I'm all alone and this is not going to go well, and so God responds. God allows him to hear something from his enemy that would strengthen his heart according to the text. Look at verses 9 through, through uh, 11 of chapter 7. Again, trying to encourage his heart. I think this is what God does. That same night the Lord said to him, said to Gideon, rise, go down against the camp, that I, for I have given it into your hand. That should be enough. That, that sentence should be just enough. I've given it to you, but... If you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward, your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. 
it's interesting what God does here. God uh, sends Gideon kind of to sneak into the enemy's camp. And remember, there are thousands. And the text tells us it litters the ground like, like sand on a seashore, these people. And he kind of eases into the camp and he hears men talking. And one of them is talking about a dream he had. There's a dream, weird dream, a barley cake rolls into the camp and destroys the tent of Midian. One of the other guys that are hearing the story, I know what that is. I can, I can interpret that dream. Gideon is going to come and crush us. Now, can you imagine being Gideon hearing this story from the enemy himself? Like, that's how this is going to go? And the text says that Gideon left and was strengthened. He was, re- he was ready to go. And I want you to see a sequence of events that happens in Gideon's heart that I think is true of every man and woman of God when God gets a hold of it. Look at verses 15 through 17. As soon as, as, soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, what did, what did he do? He worshiped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hands. So he believed the word of God. And he divided the the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets in the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look in me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. So watch the sequence of happens for for Gideon in, in this whole thing where his heart's transformed. He worships God, he believes that he would deliver him, and that he leads by example. Those three things always happen when God gets his heart. When God gets a hold of his people, there is a worship. We, we worship the Lord. We recognize that it's him. We believe his words and we can't help but influencing other people. That, that's how it works for Gideon. That's how it always works. So, so you got to do some assessments of your own life at this point. What kind of version of you and Jesus do you have? Because it's so American and so popular to have a version of you and Jesus that is just you and Jesus that is just um, random, like just totally random. Uh, uh, this, this idea of compartmentalized faith that Jesus sits over here and it's like that fire alarm behind the glass. When you need him, you can break it. That kind of Jesus. The kind of Jesus that just sits on the shelf until you're ready for him kind of Jesus. The kind of Jesus that can crowd your, cramp your style sometimes, but you want him. You, you've, you've got him this getting by kind of faith. If that is your, your kind of honest assessment of where you're at with Christ, then I suggest that you examine your con- convictions because I don't think that's what God does in a heart. I don't think God takes people from, from death into life and they have a compartmentalized, marginal, distant relationship with God the Father. I'm not saying there's not struggles, but when he gets a hold of a heart, it worships, it believes and it leads. That's how it happens. I get every once in a while texts, emails from people. Most of the time they're cool. Sometimes not so cool. Um, and every once in a while a text or an email will show up. Why don't you just get rid of that worship stuff? Why don't you just get rid of this stuff? Get to the point. Those are all preliminaries. If, you're, if your expression at all that the house of God, ascribing worth to God, or in the word, or serving is preliminaries, and they have nothing to do with your faith, then I'm telling you to re-examine your version of Christianity, because that's not scripture. God gets a heart. He wants all of it, every bit of it, and the outcome will be believing more about him and caring more about his people. It is a leadership, and that happened for Gideon. He couldn't help himself. He worshiped. He believed that God was going to give it to him, 
and he led the people to follow him exactly. So I want you to remember what's happening for Gideon here. God is more aware of your need than you are, and what he provides is exactly what you need. My assumption is after the whole kind of gleaning of 20,000 and another 10,000 that Gideon says, I know what I need. I need all those people back. This was a bad idea. But that's not at all what he needs. Gideon needs to have his faith reassured to the point that he believes that God made a promise to fight for him, not for him to provide for himself. And he had to believe that, and God takes it all away to make that point. So get that in your heart. Here's the third lesson. I think that shows up for, for men and women when God gets a hold of our heart, and that is this lesson of, of victory, okay? So here it is, the story. Gideon told uh, his 300, split up in three groups of 100, okay? And here's, here's a trumpet, here's a jar, and here's a torch. Have fun. This is gonna be a really great battle. And so what the text tells us in verse 22, that at the right moment, they started to yell, for the Lord and for Gideon. And they smashed the jars and lit their torches and the entire army of the Midianites were totally confused, total chaos, and they go running out of their tents and they just slaughter each other. Chapter eight, verse 10 says, 120,000 people died from confusion. And verse, verse 22 of chapter seven says, God caused it. God caused that confusion. So let me ask you this question. Whose victory was that? Say it. Okay, stop. Whose victory is every victory? Do you believe that? You didn't say that one as much conviction as the Gideon one, by the way. Whose victory is every victory? Okay, now hang on to that statement because I'm going to hold you accountable to that statement. So God is, God's victory is conversion from someone who doesn't know Jesus and doesn't see their sin and doesn't want God in their life, that's a victory that God is responsible for. Transformation, like becoming different over time, that God moves in our hearts and changes how we think and perceive things. He's responsible for that victory. God is also responsible for restoration when things are totally broken and, and messed up. He fixes those things. Forgiveness, like the impossible. Someone has offended me so deeply, but somehow his... His word moves me so much that I can forgive those who offend me. His victory shows up, faith in trials, right? I, I don't let go of who God is or his promises, even though the world is coming down around my head. Whose victory is every victory? It's God's victory. And by the way, church, God is moving, and he's doing all sorts of like mini-scope battles all over this room. And I'm certain you're looking around going, I don't have enough. And this plan isn't working out. And God, this isn't the right direction. And I feel more comfortable if. I get it. I get it. You see like Gideon sees it. But God is on the process of showing up and showing off in our life. And it is about his glory, his victory. Amen? Okay. Now, this, this transition is going to seem odd. If chapter 6 is this frightened, kind of insecure man that God has to establish faith in his life and you see him express it by going in and fighting and doing jar breaking and torch lighting and trumpet blowing to see a victory. Then chapter eight is gonna seem like it's out of nowhere. I call it the other side of a believer. Um, and it's this truth. It is the distance between believing God does it 
versus letting success go to our head. And that happens to us too, doesn't it? That's also in us. And it happens to Gideon. God has clearly done a work. He has turned Midianite's sword against each other. The end of chapter 7, Gideon's battle rallies the rest of Israel, and he calls them out, the men of Ephraim, to go after and cut them off at the pass so they can't escape, and, and they do. Um, his kind of quick-footed wisdom kind of turns the men of Ephraim out of a, from an accusation against him, like, you're trying to steal all the glory. We want some of it for ourselves. which, by the way, side note, God was totally accurate in assuming that men would want to take the credit for this battle. The men of Ephraim were, were there too, but Gideon kind of talks them out of it. says, no, no, you're, no, you're, you're great people, and you got more than I do, and it's, it's all good. And it just kind of calms in peace at, at that point. But watch this. The distance between Gideon's best moment and his very worst moment is almost indistinguishable according to the text. You can hardly, probably not even see it. And it's verse 4. It sounds so subtle. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over. And he and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. There is a totally different Gideon that starts to develop in this story. He, be, he emerges. I want you to know that there's no need for Gideon to cross over to the Jordan. That is the Canaanite land. That's not what God told him to do. God said, here, drive out the Midianites from your land, and I will give you success. I'll do this work. You are the judge and the redeemer of this place, not that place. And Midianites came to, into Israel, and, and now they're gone. And by the way, these men of Ephraim have brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb, the princes of Midianites, to him, and he's got these heads in his hand. Sounds like victory to me. I've not ever done warfare, but that sounds like a good day. You've routed 120,000 people, and you've got the princes, and they're on the run, and they're out of town. We're, we're, we're done. Now, verse 5 tells us that Gideon didn't stop. Gideon came... So the Jordan crossed over, he and the 300 men. And so he said to the men of Succoth, please give us loaves of bread to the people who follow me for they are exhausted. So here's what's happening. He's pursuing, in verse five, after Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. Now that sounds sort of right. I mean, I've never like been a general. It sounds sort of right. Let's keep going after them. We'll wipe them out so completely we'll never have to suffer from them returning again. And uh, it sounds sort of right, but there's something wrong with Gideon. There's something else driving him. He is starting to forget what this whole thing is about. God said, I want you to drive them out from here. And he's done that. But there's something else moving him. He is, he is totally feeling at this point that this story has now turned from about God, and this is how subtle it is, to about himself. Now let me prove it to you. Before I, before I read 5 and 6 and 7 again, let me just ask you to kind of set up your own heart. Isn't that totally like us? To, in the midst of what God is doing, assume that I play a significant role in his great work? To confuse this whole story, to think, well, it's probably, probably about me. Now, nobody verbalizes that way. We just behave that way. So, that's what happens to Gideon. Whenever we experience success, just like Gideon, we kind of think it's about us. At one point, Gideon is worshiping God, believing God, leading people. Now it's going to his head, and look at what the outcome is. It's, it's pride. Back to five through nine, and I'll tell you what it is. 
Here's what he says again. So he said to the men of Succoth, please give me loaves of bread to the people who follow me for they are exhausted and I'm pursuing after the king, Zeba and Zalmunna. And the officials of Succoth said, are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And from there he went to Penuel and spoke to the men, them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, when I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. You know what's going on here. Gideon's feeling disrespected. In just a flash of a moment, he leaves the battlefield and says, you don't realize I just rescued you, right? You, you, you have forgotten that I'm the one who just drove out the Midianites from you and now you won't, you won't cover me with food. Now, I understand why they didn't. They were wondering if he could. Like, if we, if we throw in our lot with you, Gideon, and they end up winning, then we'll have to deal with their wrath. So we're just going to play Switzerland here. We're not making a move. The only reason this happens is because Gideon feels disrespected. How dare you not give me credit or to believe that I can do this? And so he, he reacts. In his pride, he, he reacts because he's disrespected. Now, look how this thing kind of ends. 15 through 17. And he came to the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you have taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars with them and taught the men of Succoth a lesson. And he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. That's what you get for not believing in me. That should happen right after this verse. Very, very telling tale about his heart at this point, thinking he's a significant player in it. But now he captures these kings and there is another part to the narrative that's kind of secret in the story that tells you about his heart. Look at verses 18 and 19. You're about to find out what's really driving Gideon. Then he said to Zeba and Zalmunna, where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? Out of nowhere, another narrative. What do we know? We don't know anything. He just says, where are these men you killed? And the answer is, you are, so were they, every one of them resembling the son of a king. And he said to them, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. This is about revenge. Gideon marches across the border to do something God didn't tell him to do. In fact, the only time God's brought up in this narrative is to justify Gideon's actions, never in an act of obedience. And all he wants is to pay these men back for their, for their evil towards his brothers. Nothing at all what God told him to do. So we've got this disrespect, we've got revenge, we've got pride, and he's on the hunt. And to humiliate the kings, he looks at his son. Many writers would say his son is a boy at this point, says, kill these men. And his boy, very much like Gideon, says, ah, no, uh, this is not my deal. This is your deal, I'm afraid. And so Gideon slaughters the two kings of, of the Midianites. So let's stop. As gory as these narratives are, we've got to ask a question. How easy is it for us to go from being dependent on God and doing what God says and thinking that it's about us, taking matters into our own? How easy is that? What do you think? Pretty easy, isn't it? Pretty easy. Keller said something about success. He said, success can easily cause us to forget God's grace because our hearts are desperate to believe that we want to save ourselves. 
down deep within the soul of every man, woman, and child is a desire to make themselves acceptable to God. I don't need a savior. There's something good about me. I'm okay. I'm really okay. Even though it might be small, it's still there. I think Gideon, after hearing all the promises of God, seeing God deliver him right in the minute of that wonderful work, he goes, it was pretty good today. I did pretty good. That was a great idea, splitting up those 300 men. Those jars, who would have thought about that? Me. That was my idea. I deserve, and you need to pay. And that was Gideon's response. How fast does it happen to us to switch from dependence to arrogance, from humility to, to pride, from glory of God to glory of self, from good intentions to bad motives? How fast does that happen? Can anybody count it? Because in my heart, being really honest, it can go in a nanosecond to say, this is about you, God. And without even thinking about it, right on the heels of it is me going, do they, do they notice? Do they notice that I'm here? Do they care that this was my idea? It happens to all of us. Now, we get the advantage of reading a narrative from a long ways away, and I know it seems shocking to see how fast that Gideon flipped from being God's man to being his own man, but there should be no surprise, right? There should be no surprise at all because sin doesn't need time to organize itself against us. Sin doesn't sit around and go, man, they just seem so studly today, and they obeyed God just a minute ago. There's no shot we've got. Sin is not waiting around to figure out an idea. You know, if I take you back to, to Genesis. You don't need to turn there, but remember what God said. Principle always true. When he's dealing with Cain and Abel's tension over what sacrifice to bring God, remember that? And Cain is upset that, that, that the grain offering wasn't that important, really. And God said to Cain, it's always true to everyone, be very, very careful, man. Be very, very careful because sin is crouching at your door and it wants to eat your lunch. That's a paraphrase, by the way. God didn't say that. Do you remember that? That wasn't true just in Cain's day. Sin crouching at the door happens in our day. Happen in every day. It's always true. And in Gideon's case, pride was crouching at the door of success. God used him. God brought a victory. And Gideon said, well, then it's got to be about me. Now, let me show you something else that happens when success goes to your head. You end up with bad leadership. Look at verses 22 and 23. And the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Sounds like the right answer, right? No trick question. It sounds like it, doesn't it? Like that's the, that's the thing Gideon should have said. But what you find here in verse 23 is a classic example of honoring God with your lips when your heart is far from him because Gideon didn't mean it. He said the right things. In verse 24, he goes, oh, yeah, the Lord will rule over you. Give me your gold. Here, just take all the spoils from this battle, put it on this tarp, it'll be for me. So he starts to collect the king's ransom, and look what he does with it in verse 27. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in the city in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his, and to his family. This ephod, um, obviously God told the, the Hebrews to make this 
outer garment, this priestly garment that the priest wore, and it was used to discern the will of God. Do not confuse what the Hebrews were made to do as, as priests with what Gideon is doing here. Many writers would suggest that this ephod was just a way to describe a garment put on something else like an idol. Now think about this. The same man who was used by God to deliver Israel from its own idolatry is the same man who led them right back into it. And you thought it couldn't happen to you? Like the distance between believing and faith and worship and thinking it's about me and worshiping wrong things happens almost instantaneously here. It's almost like a virtual repeat of Aaron's sin with the people of God in the desert, remember? The people of God exited out of Egypt. Moses hangs out on the mountain too long. We're impatient. Aaron, make for us something we can worship. Fashion gold into a calf, and there you go. It's almost word for word the outcome that, that Gideon is involved in here. And by the way, it's the same tragic outcome because the text tells us that the people of God and Gideon's own family and himself hoard after it. Same kind of description used earlier in this text when the people of God worshiped Baal. They made it their God. And it was Gideon doing it. Now, talk about wasted leadership. The way chapter eight reads, it's pretty simple. He's brutal with his own people. He runs them through briars and bushes and kills them. He takes the spoils of war for himself. He sets up an image for himself in his hometown, makes much of himself. He causes spiritual harm to people. He lives like a king with many wives, according to the text, and he's not confused what he thinks of himself. He names his son Abimelech, my dad is king. Anybody confused? That's my boy. What'd you name him? My dad is king. So, let me make a point about this. The people of God, after this victory, looked to Gideon and said, you be our king. Because that's what we do with men who, who have success. You, you lead us. And there's something to be said about our culture, how we have a tendency to run after men and put our hope in men and think much of men. And, and uh, it happens in the church world, right? And I think we're partly responsible of it, just, just like... Israel is, leaders who make much of themselves do it because we make much of them. And there's a kind of a cancer. Arrogance is almost accepted. It's almost a leadership technique and it's not good. And the reason why I bring this up is because everywhere in this room there are leaders. From pastors and small group leaders and RC leaders and Sunday school teachers and counselors and on and on it goes. Men who lead their homes and moms who lead their homes and leaders everywhere. We have one objective as leaders. It's not to make much of ourselves, ever. It's to walk humbly and put our faith and trust in Christ. And I'll tell you this, the, the fight for humility is so strong. We got a war with it. The scriptures say, to James tells us that God opposes the proud and he does what? Gives grace to the humble. All I want is grace. I don't want God's opposition. And so here's what I know. The routine of leaders, and I'm putting us all in that category. Every day we wake up to be small and put on a servant's apron. Every day. We look for ways to be obscure and make much of Christ. If anybody says anything about us, it is to say something about Christ. Amen? That's what we're to use our position for. 
because otherwise that success will go to our head, and we'll think that we're an important part of this story. So let me show you one last, with the five minutes we have left, one last kind of outcome when this success goes to your head. Well, you've got this now ripple effect of failure. Your failure now ends up in other generations. Now, I don't have the time to read all of chapter nine, and I'm trusting that you will read it. It isn't any fun, so that's a warning before you get to it. But chapter nine is, is all about the impact of Gideon's life and the impact that he had on his son, Abimelech. And so let me just give you the snapshot of chapter nine. It's a brutal story of manipulation, murder, oppression, and paranoia, and evil. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? That's what it's about. Abimelech has a great idea. After all, I'm my dad's son, and my dad was a king. I'll be king. I want to be king. And so he goes to Shechem, to his relatives. This is his mom's side of the family. He says, listen, wouldn't it be better for you to have a leader that you were related to than all these other sons of Gideon? And he had many wives and 70 sons. And so they agreed with him, like, let's conspire together to make you king. And so the first thing that they do is they hand Gideon 70 pieces of silver from the house of Baal, the worship, the false worship. And the text just says he hires a bunch of worthless men. That's what he does. And he proceeds to march over to Ophrah, his hometown, and he slaughters. He kills his 70 brothers. Says he kills them on one stone. My assumption is he beheaded his own family. All because he wanted to be king. And Shechem, the city, thought it was a good idea. The people said, yes, we should have you lead over us. But one son escaped. Jothan was, was the younger son, and he escaped, and he came back to some secret place that he could speak to the people of Shechem. And he pronounced kind of a prophecy over them and said, listen, here's how it's going to go down for you. Because of the wicked intent and the manipulation and the conspiring to make him king, and because of his wicked intent and manipulation to have you do it, here's what's going to happen. You're both going to destroy each other. That's how this is going to end. And the whole story of chapter 9 is how they kill each other. That's the whole story. In fact, chapter 9, verse 22 to 24, very interesting phrase. It says here, Abimelech ruled over Israel only three years, and God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. That the violence done to the 70 sons of Jeroboam might come and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother who killed him, and on the men of Shechem who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. That's what's going on here. Now, somebody, some people are troubled with the phrase, God sent an evil spirit. This is not God making evil. This is God using evil to punish evil men. Very simple. Turn it on itself. And they'll destroy each other. These people who deserve to be punished. That's how this is going to work. And so Shechem betrays Abimelech and a man named Gal shows up and says, I can do a better job than Abimelech can. And he gets paranoid about it, hears about it, and just starts killing. And he's on his way through Shechem. He's raising the town. He's ruining everything. And he's killing these people. And the way it ends is that Abimelech ends up at the Tower of Thebes. And there's a handful of people left and a woman We've seen this before. Possibly a housewife leans over the edge and sees Abimelech and takes a small millstone and just drops it, crushes him, crushes his head. Now, he's still alert enough to think this, though. Please, he's talking to his sword bearer, run me through so it can't be said that a woman killed me, okay? <laughs> and that's the end of the story. 
And you look at that story and go, what in the world is going on? Verse 56, thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jeroboam, the end. Sometimes narratives like this kind of just, gosh, that's no fun, man. That's in the Bible, just murder and jealousy and pride and brutal things like that. Well, here's, I think, some lessons we can learn. I think we should learn in this story. That is in us, church. And I'm not suggesting that you're gonna go out and slaughter 70 brothers, but I'm suggesting you will make much of you just like I will. And you'll suddenly be a big important part in your narrative and you'll not give credit to God and you'll make much of yourself and you'll justify your actions and you'll act like a victim when it comes to particular circumstances. And you won't own up to this issue. Here's what I think the church has to be great at. Ready? Confession and repentance. It's in us. Until Jesus comes back for his bride, it's in us. Until death is defeated, it's in us. So tomorrow, today, this afternoon, I might get an email, you might get a note from somebody, and suddenly you start to swell up inside or feel pride or anger or whatever it might be, and suddenly you have it, Gideon-like behavior. Here's what we do. Call it what God calls it. Just call it sin. This isn't right. I shouldn't care that much about my reputation. This isn't right, and I just leave it behind. That's repentance. So, not a great story, but that's where it ends. But I think there's a couple of takeaways that are gonna be helpful as I pray, and that is guard your heart, church. Guard your heart. No matter how God uses you, remember it's not about you. You have to fight for that. God gives some big positions and lots of influence, and to some others it appears as there's none whatsoever. It doesn't matter. Guard your heart. Guard your heart. doesn't matter where you find yourself in your story. It's not about you. And then I would want to remind you this. Leadership is so much more than the outcome of things. Leadership is about success. Leadership in its essence, biblically defined, is about humility and faithfulness. That isn't sexy in our world. Leaders who take on small positions to serve, to put on the, the waiter's apron to serve and wash feet, they're not noticed and nobody cares but Jesus. And that matters a lot, right? Let's pray. God, I just pray for your help. These things are impossible without the Spirit's power in us. So I pray that you would uh, confront our hearts when they want the credit I pray that you would comfort our hearts to know that Jesus is the reason and he is more than enough. We pray for his strength in Christ's name, amen.